0: From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park, it's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland, on the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. We're back out here at the training facility. We have a good interview with Cameron Knowles, T2 coach, coming up. Um, Hopefully, it's a good show. Sort of weird, though, that we won't be talking too much about Thorns today.
1: Yeah, it's a transition for everybody. Portland soccer fans, Portland as a club. that We're down to two seasons left. Although, it is very interesting that we've never really had a T2 playoff push. They've been close before, but... That seems so far in the distance after last year, and now it seems like a real thing.
0: Yeah, no, we haven't spent a lot of time on T2 um, on this podcast, but I, I think with the playoff push, obviously today's interview, there'll be a little bit more to talk about on the T2 level as well. So it's not <laughs> like we're completely losing <laughs> the I second I feel weird team. about it because I feel like there's like
1: this season's worth of knowledge from just following T2. Yeah. And that i want to pour out so let's try to contain richard <laughs> yeah, a little bit it. here and let's maybe start with the timbers and by the time we're done talking about the timbers maybe i'll be a little bit calmer about,
0: T2. <laughs> about T2. all right well let's start with the timbers then uh just the, the most exciting game you've ever seen this weekend is that <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy i mean for me i actually thought it was interesting but i think that it, if you have to start it with, like, for me, I thought it was interesting. That says a little bit of something about what everybody else is probably seeing. Yeah, because. I think
0: there's definitely things to talk about from the game, but I, exciting is not,
1: uh, it's not a word that anyone should be using. A highly contentious chess match. Yeah, these are the euphemisms we're supposed to use here, right? But your prediction, it was kind of on in one way and then off in another because it's way too optimistic about the goals (laughs) because you predicted a 1-1 draw which it was a draw obviously Portland and Dallas 0-0 on Saturday but I also feel like this game had nowhere close to two goals in it
0: no. Uh, <laughs> most had most, it had, I think, close to one goal. I think Dallas had one big opportunity in the yeah. game. Um, Larry
1: Smabiali with a great pass to set up. Christian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> a, <laughs> poor, up a poor, arm mistake from Smabiali, but Adanel comes up, and I think that was really the only major chance of the game. I mean, I think the Timbers' biggest chance was Lucas Milano kicking the ball directly at the goalkeeper. So
1: They had that counterattack where Diego Valeri kind of put it right yeah. to the keeper. So, but a few, I mean, a
0: few right to the keeper shots. Right. like Por- Portland had
1: like a couple of counter attacks that were close and I think in general they probably created more half chances but it really was just a game of half chances
0: yeah, definitely so, um, I, I don't I guess look, you can give out the points this week because I don't we didn't give out points last week and I wasn't here the week before so I don't even remember whose turn it is so uh, I'll just give it to you well
1: since. I think you deserve a lot of credit for this because you did see a stalemate maybe not the stalemate that actually played out but I think you are 24.6 points All right. uh, you did Maybe the spirit of the game wasn't there, but y- you picked a draw, and I want to give you credit for that.
0: Wondering how much you are going to give yourself. I am going to give myself
1: in the same range. So I picked a Diego Chara yellow card in the ninety seventh minute, I believe he got the yellow yeah. card. He pulled down Roland Lamadas, uh, stave off a counter attack late. So I gave you what twenty six point four point or twenty four point six.
0: One of those two.
1: Okay, I am just going to give myself twenty six point five. So just a little bit more, recognizing that these side baits are harder to hit, but it's not that hard of a side bet to hit. So I really don't want to outpoint you that much on something like. Like this, yeah. um, it's pretty much like predicting a Diego Valeri goal. These things happen <laughs> at the same frequency, and yeah, maybe it's you're not going to have that happen every game, but you don't deserve like a seventy point
0: yeah uh. on this.
1: <laughs> but I feel like we're almost already done talking about this game. But maybe we should go into this a little bit more. What actually happened in the game? It really did play out as just a stalemate that. You know, Giovanni Savarese kind of hinted at it in his Tuesday press conference before that Dallas might be happy coming in and getting a draw. And it seemed like they were very happy. They went to five in the back at the end to try to preserve it. I guess the question I want to throw to you is do you think that Giovanni Savarese in his game plan took enough risks to try to get the extra two points at home?
0: Well, I, I don't think it played out that way. It, they certainly didn't show much life in the attack. I, I think, obviously, he goes to two forwards. Um, he tries to put Chara, which we'll, we'll get a little bit more into, into a position where he can be more influential in the attack, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of a more wide position. I, so I think he was you know, setting it up in a way that they could um, sort of have some opportunities to get all three points at home. But yeah, it, it did not play out that way at all. The, the Timbers took nine shots in the game, put three on target. And like we were saying before, I mean, half chances for both sides. It's a positive defensive performance for the Timbers, but they didn't come close to scoring in that entire game.
1: Yeah, one word that we keep repeating or I keep repeating in the notes we have for this week is concerned. How concerned are you about their attack? How concerned should we be with Samuel Armenteros' form? How concerned should we be that the Timbers seem to be inching forward to a reliance on Sebastian Blanco to be the surging player out of midfield, to connect the levels, to be the main creator on this team? I think we have to consider that when we're considering the performance on Saturday because maybe the team's most important offensive player was out because of suspension. But if your team, particularly at home, in attack falls off that much without one player, shouldn't that be an area of concern?
0: Yeah, I I am definitely concerned about the attack at the moment. I I mean, we've talked about it all year, how the consistent goal scores or Consistent, um, maybe in quotes at this moment, um, are are Valeri, Armateros, and Blanco. And the Timbers have got goals from other players recently, Uh, a goal here from one player, a goal here from another player. Um, But in the last 11 games, which is kind of what we've started to look at, that's kind of when the unbeaten streak ended, Valeri has two goals. One of those was a PK. Armateros has one goal, uh, and Blanco has one goal. Um, Valerian Armateros don't have any assists, and Blanco has five assists. So Mm -hmm. Blanco is really the one that's setting up these goals, like you mentioned. And Valerian Armateros just aren't getting on the board as much as you need those two players to be when they are two players that you kind of rely on to carry your attack. And at this point in the season, when you want to be sort of rounding into form, getting a rhythm it doesn't feel like the Timbers are on the cusp of that. And maybe Blanco helps. And maybe this weekend we see a massive difference in the attack. It's not like the goal numbers um, in the last 11 stretch stretch of games are terrible in terms of what the number the Timbers have scored. Uh, but it is overly reliant right now on Blanco to kind of set up these goals because uh, no one else really is consistently. And the three players that you have that you want to be able to score in goals you're just not seeing that much production from
1: Diego Valeri I think we're seeing him get into spaces like he had early in the second half this weekend when Diego Chara played him through on a counter attack he was in a space to make an impact so To a certain degree, I'm not too worried about him. I'm I'm worried about Armenteros. It doesn't seem like he's had a good chance in a while. I'm worried a little bit about Bobasi because he started so strong when he scored early, had almost a second goal in his first MLS start of the year, but now he's up to 277 minutes with only one goal this year. And it really is looking like the team, not in terms of individuals, as a collective, doesn't have a way to get a fourth goal scorer involved. And if that's the case, then you have to deal with that reality. But that reality throughout this whole year has led to a lot of close games and from april to beginning of august when the close games were going their way 15 unbeaten and now that it feels like the close the games that are close are maybe not going their way as often like on saturday they didn't get the goal they needed 2 points down and then on the road, I guess we don't have to go into that too much, on the road there's still big, big worries about whether this team is even actually the same team on the road. So as, as good as situation as the Timbers are in, they're still in fourth place in the conference. They have a decent amount of talent. I feel like there are more questions about this team right now than there are answers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think one of the other things that people were asking about coming out of this game is – looking at the formation. And I think one part of that is just sort of, you know, how did this work out? It was essentially a four-four-two. Uh, 4 You can write it out a little bit differently, but a four-four-two with a diamond midfield is essentially what they rolled out. What, what did you think of the formation? And then uh, moving on from that, and maybe if you want to answer that first, I think the biggest question that came out of the formation is where Char was implemented in it.
1: Yeah. I think that question is so fascinating because Ross Smith revealed on broadcast this week, what, um, people who had been out to practice all week or had access to the practices all week knew that for the first half of the week, Diego Chara was playing in the six at the base of the diamond. And then once they had finished putting in the game plan for Dallas, he moved to the left side of the diamond. And I definitely get people saying that, you know, based on his, his all of his time here in Portland, Diego Chara should be a six. And it's hard to argue that. The game plan on Saturday was very unique because it was trying to steer play to where Diego Chara could be the anchor of the defense along that left flank. So I think it's almost weird to look at Saturday's game too much and say, well, Diego Chiraz should be an eight or a six. But I think the reality underpinning it is there aren't a lot of sixes in this team right now that you trust to play that role, the way that Guzman played in Minnesota. And quite frankly, uh, what we saw from the ball movement from Lawrence Olam on Saturday, I thought it could have been better. But there also aren't a lot of eights that you would trust more than Diego Chiraz either. So I think the team is just in a situation where... They need more Diego Charas.
0: I mean, I think yeah, this team would be happy with a few more Diego Charas, but I think one of the things that I was interested in asking you sort of from reading what you wrote about this um sort of question of whether Charas better as a 6 or an 8 is sort of I mean, I don't think it it's all. It's only a question of a 6 for 8 I think in a diamond midfield, he gets pushed a little bit wider because you sort of have two midfielders, just the way the setup is with the base sort of centrally. If you're playing with just two defensive midfielders, which the Timbers have in the past, I think they're a little bit more central and a little bit more flexible to go to the other side of the field. But when you're looking at Chara's actions from this weekend, they're really concentrated on one side of the field. And almost for me, I think it's a little bit more worrisome to sort of limit his defensive actions to one side of the field more so than what kind of ground you're giving him leeway to cover
1: I definitely think that's a great observation it's a trend we should follow because if it continues to be that way when the game plan is different then I would definitely worry I mean so much of the game plan this week was about steering Dallas to that side so The fact that Chirah's actions over there is almost a sign that on some level the game plan worked. I actually think the game plan could have been executed better. We saw moments where the team was able to counter through that left side of the field in the fourth minute when Diego Chirah won the ball, in the 56th minute when Matt Hedges turned over the ball. And I think the game plan was for that to work more often, but that would have required, frankly, more intense pressing than we saw. But if that trend continues when the game plan is different and Diego Chara continues to be isolated to one side of the field, yeah, I would be very concerned about that. So I think in general, uh, as different game plans are implemented, we have to watch to see that they don't alienate Chara or limit Chara. I I think that has to be a concern. Not to drone on too long here, but as much as Sebastian Blanco is the most important person in attack for this team— Diego Chara is the most important person, period, for this team. So you want to be putting him in positions that maximizes his value. I think this weekend they kind of did because that one part of the diamond was going to be so important in how they executed their game plan, but you can't have that every week.
0: Yeah, and I I do think that, you know, with Blanco coming back in, it's just totally different. So it's hard to, like you said, read too much into this game plan because I don't think they go with the same 4-4-2 setup. Uh, And even if they do, it looks very different when Blanco's part of it. So given that, I I don't necessarily think this is going to be a problem we see in the next three games when they're not dealing with compacted schedules unless, you know, knock on wood, injuries, suspension (laughs) More injuries, more suspensions. The other theme of this weekend, right? (laughs) Yeah, if this team is able to uh, sort of maintain the the situation, the players that they want to have on the field. I'm not sure if we'll see Char in the same role. But, yeah, I think that was a major talking point sort of coming
1: out of the weekend. So let me throw this at you because I feel like I've droned on a while. What do you think the Timbers' best formation is right now, if you even think there is a best one? And what do you think Diego Charra's best role is within that formation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think i'd like to see the timbers you know what 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 worked during the unbeaten streak right now you know they've tested out different formations they've tweaked this and that what worked in the unbeaten streak oftentimes was um you know the five in the back uh and so i think that's something they they try to go back to um and within that um i I, like i need to write this down now Uh um I mean the role that Char was being used in that situation, but yeah, I need to now like write down in my mind what this
1: looks like. Well, they would have the five in the back, and yeah. then they would have Char at the base of a midfield yeah. three.
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah, so that I mean that is kind of I like wherever you can kind of get Char in a central position mm-hmm. um, as sort of his starting point and gives yeah. him leeways to go to both sides of the field, and I, he is a player I think. Obviously, if you're not giving him the attacking responsibility, he won't get as high in the attack, but he's a player that generally is going to cover a ton of ground no matter where you put him. I like him at the base of the diamond, but I don't see that as their best formation. And, and so I think when you look at the, the five in the back, um, the, the formation that they used effectively during the 15 game on beating streak, it puts him back centrally in a sort of different setup in the midfield, which I think suits him. And, and was what was effective for the team and what I think right now getting into rhythm, they need to go back to.
1: And that's the other thing that I'm concerned about is the fact that when you looked at this stretch of four games in five weeks, you kind of looked at it as the home stretch of the season where the team could start to get into a rhythm, have some consistent routines, but now... The first game of the stretch, they're missing Sebastian Blanco, key player. It's hard to even put out a formation that you can build off of without him in there. Now, they're going to be without Jeff Antonella, Liam Ridgewell, Alvis Powell probably for this weekend. We're going to get updates later, but we know they're going to be without Liam Ridgewell unless a Hail Mary uh, appeal works. But I think we've all seen a replay on that at this point, which makes it unlikely that an appeal is going to work on that. Jeff Antonella looks like he's almost certainly out. I mean, having his shoulder pop out of place twice in a four-minute span yeah. And then Alvis Powell, I don't know what the update is on and him. And
0: neither of them were in practice today, yeah. uh, Powell and Adonella That doesn't necessarily mean anything, and we will get an update. Um, but it, there it, was obviously to a point where they had to be held out at the beginning of the week.
1: Yeah, and when we think back to this year, it's really rare... That somebody doesn't practice on Tuesday and goes into the starting lineup yeah. come Saturday. I mean, Giovanni Savarese, usually he likes to give these people time at T2 before reintegrating him. That's not going to happen now, but it seems really unlikely that we'll see Powell, Ridgewell, or Antonella at all this week. Jamie, I think I got an email. Do you mind if I read this really quick or do you want to continue <laughs> with the podcast?
0: I think we should probably continue.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about those absences because... A point against Dallas, I don't think you can ever really be too upset about, especially because I think defensively the Timbers played really well. But coming out of that game, they're going to be without their best defender. They're going to be without their best attacking option from the fullback position. And the second most important person in defense, maybe the most important person in defense, Jet Fadonel, he's going to be gone too. The back five is decimated all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, I think quickly I want to touch on the Ridgewell red card because I think that... We sort of both agree, based on what we said, that it's not going to be overturned. But I think that's not necessarily something that's universally agreed upon. Yeah. So I did want to just touch on sort of your thoughts on um, why we don't see it. I mean, I don't think – I think I agree um, that the team will probably not pursue it and we'll find out more information today. But I don't see that being overturned uh, given that Ridgewell – Essentially, cleated someone in the air, no matter what forces behind it. But what are your thoughts about it?
1: I mean, I've heard the argument in the coming and the days that have followed that, like, oh, this happened to Lee Nguyen here, and it didn't, or maybe Lee Nguyen did that, and he didn't get a red card. Or people have thrown different examples at me. Look, bottom line, I just don't think you should be allowed to kick people in this sport, and that's essentially what Liam did. Obviously, was it an accident, but you have to be responsible for your own actions with your body, and that was a dangerous play. Like, you go cleats into somebody's hip like right below their kidney. Yeah. I'm sorry, that has to be a red card. And I, I think, I, I don't want to speak for Liam, but I don't think Liam is super shocked that he, uh, when he looked back on it, got a red card.
0: See, I, I think that, maybe I don't disagree a little bit, that it, I think it could potentially have been a yellow card. I think yeah. that on the field, it, it's it could have maybe gone either way just because the force behind it didn't, it's hard to tell from the replay, but it didn't look like there was much behind the force. But my feeling is that once it's called a red card, there's no way you can say, oh, that's blatantly wrong because yeah. it's one of those that can go either way. So once it is a red card, that's going to stand.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's a good way to put it because almost everybody I've talked to, they haven't gone off their initial opinion of this. I was at field level at the time. I saw Liam's foot land right in Lamar's back. I saw him get a little bit boost off of it. And kind of like once you see that happen, you see you get like a couple extra inches on his jump, you're just like, no, that has to be a red card. I mean, that's, <laughs> I remember doing that kind of thing in like seventh and eighth grade in basketball. <laughs> you would have like your friends stand low and you would put your foot on their back. Of course, we're playing with basketball shoes at that time. and We're not like a grown man kicking out <laughs> with unintentional force into another man. But I think just generally, I think we would all prefer to have a game where kicking somebody yeah. in the back gets a red card.
0: Yeah. So I think I think we both agree that Liam. We'd be shocked to see Liam back in the lineup this weekend, and that leads back to the point you were initially asking about. I think this is. I think this game is going to be very difficult, and I think missing these players is going to be tough. I think Adenell has been really good for the Timbers this year. We, we've seen that. Now losing a goalkeeper generally is it's something that teams might be able to recover from in terms of just like the play on the field. Adanel has been so good for them yeah. and I don't want to say that it's easy for them to recover from them, but depending on what kind of plays the goalkeeper gets, I mean, having Clark doesn't necessarily make a huge difference. I think losing Pal, at least that's a position that we've been talking about where the Timbers have sort of already been dealing with a, a, a competition and, and so it just puts Valentin and Viafonia back there and, and I don't think that's a bad option so in that sense maybe it's not the worst two players to lose in the field I think Ridgewell is kind of more questionable for me just because we've seen we don't know it'll be Cascante or maybe Tuiloma even but we've seen Cascante recently and There's been a little bit more (laughs) error prone than we want to see, especially at this point in the season. And and I think I've talked about how nice it is to kind of get that veteran experience back there, get two consistent guys at this point in the season, as opposed to someone that can do well with Cascante, but is clearly still sort of going through some growing pains with this team.
1: We saw in Minnesota, Road Ridgewell, plus the lack of familiarity with Cascante was disastrous on a couple of offside traps that were screwed up. I think this coming weekend at RSL, and this gets a little bit ahead of the game, is the perfect time to go back to the formation that you were talking about, where you drop Lawrence Olam between Cascante and Laris Mabiala. You play with wing backs, You play with three in the middle. You play with either two up top or one behind the other. Drop Sebastian Blanco into one of those central midfield roles and do exactly pretty much what you did at Atlanta. RSL, good attack at altitude. I think you play this one conservatively because if you can get four points out of these next two games with RSL that's just so huge in a lot of ways not only it pretty much guarantees that you're going to be in the playoffs but it's going to guarantee you finish ahead of of RSL on the table probably and it's going to give you so much of an advantage to getting one of those top four spots I think as much as it stinks to say it playing for a draw in this next game going with three central defenders that's what I would do
0: yeah, so let's get a little bit more into the, this next game. Obviously, Timbers go to Salt Lake on Saturday. The game's at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. I do want to talk a little bit more about playoff implications as well. But going into this game, um, you talk about playing for a draw. I mean, given their last the road form recently, that doesn't seem like... A, <laughs> <laughs> that
1: would be a huge improvement, right? That <laughs> <laughs> would be a huge
0: improvement. They've lost four of the last five games on the road. Three of those have been blowouts. The Minnesota game was only not a blowout because of a good second half. but It that was felt a, like a blowout. It felt like it. It was a terrible, te- probably the worst first half of the year from the Timbers. Yeah. So only one performance is a draw 1-1 one, one at New England in the last five road games where the, you can actually, you know, take some positives out of a road game from the Timbers. And
1: Giovanni Savarese, after that game at Gillette Stadium, said, you know, we don't go into any game playing to draw. But they were clearly a lot more conservative in that game based on the demands of the schedule and the unique demands of that venue and its turf. But this game coming up this weekend, it feels like a trip to Houston. It feels like the Minnesota game. You're going on the road to a powerful team, a team that has skillful players or dangerous players in attack, Unless you have your act together, it's going to get out of hand quickly. And I don't know, do you feel anything different from this Timbers team than we felt ahead of the Houston or Minnesota trip?
0: No. I mean, I don't think the performance against Dallas, it maybe gives you confidence, confidence defensively because, I mean, that's been a major problem on the road. But I don't think you take a ton of confidence out of that game. And that was at home. And you know teams generally are better at home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right now, they have a lot to prove on the road. And this, I mean, I don't even think we've mentioned this. Salt Lake is 10-1-4 at home. That's the best record. Timbers have the second best record at home in the Western Conference right. this year. So <laughs> they're going to the most difficult place in the Western Conference to play on the road. And they're going to have to do much, much better than they've done in the last uh, four of the last five road games. Yeah,
1: I completely agree with you. Um, I think everything that we're pointing to says that this is going to be... If the Timbers do get one point from this, it'll be a very good result. But I think even that, we're going to need to see a different Timbers team than we've seen in the last month. I mean, even like you talked about at home, the draw this week and the 3-2 win over Columbus before, these weren't terribly impressive performances. I think there was an hour in the middle of that Columbus game where the team looked pretty convincing. But at the other end of that hour, there were still big questions that came up. So... There's really not much from the Timbers over the last month that tells me they can be the second team this year to win in Salt Lake. But at the same time, if they're going to accomplish their goals come the postseason, they're going to have to come together and reach a level that they haven't been at since June or July. And if that is going to happen, this is definitely one of the opportunities to do so.
0: Yeah, getting a little bit into the playoff picture on talking a little bit about that and getting into where the Timbers sit. I I mean, right now, Salt Lake, I believe, is two points behind them in the standings, or did they move up? last time I tried they might just be one Salt Lake is yeah just oh just two points they are still two points Salt Lake is two points behind the Timbers in the standings right now so the next two games against Salt Lake is going to determine whether RSL finishes ahead of them I mean we know that so a draw and then coming back and as a win and getting a win is going to be in a position where the Timbers ensure themselves uh, ensure that they finish ahead of Salt Lake and obviously then put themselves in playoff position i mean the galaxy are in seventh place right now 44 points only have three games left two of those games are going to be against teams that are eliminated and i feel like the galaxy might be um not moving the t- direction the timbers want right now yeah uh so i mean if the timbers completely face plan the next three games i, I don't think you can say that's guaranteed postseason birth especially with seattle's schedule too who's uh two at one point behind the timbers at this point so i i think the most important game really is the rsl at home game but you can't just if they drop all three points Mm -hmm. um this weekend that even that is just going to even it out and it's not going to be exactly where they want to be in the standings i don't think
1: if they take four points from rsl they assure that they will finish above rsl which basically guarantees they're going to be in the playoffs at that point so that's why i think playing for a draw this weekend makes so much sense take the two weeks with the international break, get some of these people healthy, come back, play at home. RSL, if they're so good at home and where they are on the table, you have to infer they're pretty bad on the road. They're only 3-10-3 on the road this year. So everything is kind of pointing to being very conservative, very tight at Rio Tinto Stadium this weekend. But to go to the question that you asked, how confident should we be? I'm still confident. You look at the table, there's a lot of reason to be confident. And then you think about how the Timbers are playing and you're like, it's very possible that, you know, they might get two points the rest of the way or something like that or or three points the rest of the way. It won't be good enough. They need to get a win over RSL in these next two games to guarantee that they'll yeah. they'll make the postseason.
0: Right now, I think, I, I still have confidence they'll make the postseason, although, like you said, it's it's not guaranteed. Um, but right now, I, I think based on performance, I, if I were to bet, I'd say six places where the Timbers are finishing. Yeah. And we'll see. It really depends on the next few games because they have, it's under their control with playing RSL. But... Right now, given everything, given this table and given how the Timbers have been playing the last 11 games, that, that's where I'd put my money.
1: And you mentioned the Galaxy, who are four points behind the Timbers. Them swapping out Siggy Schmidt for Dom Kinnear, as a Timbers fan, that would scare me. Because one of the things Dominic Kinnear said this week was we're keeping it simple defensively. We're not playing the three back anymore. We're going to play four, four two. We're keeping it simple. All the Galaxy needed to do was figure out what to do at the back, and then all of a sudden they're a dangerous team. And maybe they're not going to be the most incredible team in the league but if they can just stop shipping so many goals geez that's a team that really could end up in the playoffs all of a sudden so i think that as much as anything is why i'm scared about the timbers future because you have a viable seventh team now and the galaxy made their coaching move at just exactly the right time i think so I almost feel like we should shift gears and try to talk about something more positive but I think we should probably address some of these listener questions that we've got here uh starting with Tim. Tim asks uh Timber seems to struggle getting up the middle of the field and have to rely on moving down the flanks. How are opponents controlling the midfield?
0: I don't know if it's just that the Timbers are, are maybe struggling centrally as so much as we've seen some really poor performances in the midfield especially I mean look at the Minnesota game that I, I think a lot of those errors started in the midfield having turnovers and leading to goals and that was part of the reason why they had such that such a poor um, first half there I, I think with the formation with a diamond midfield you might get a little bit wider as I was kind of alluding to earlier and it, it might not be necessarily as going down the middle central oriented but I don't know if this is a major problem we've seen just throughout the season I I don't know what your thoughts are
1: I'm not exactly sure I buy the idea that teams are controlling the midfield against the Timbers Uh, I agree with you the Minnesota game it wasn't about midfield control it was more just like making errors deep in your own uh, defensive uh, part of the field I don't think Dallas controlled the midfield. It was kind of more of a, I don't want to say a stalemate, but I think we did see the Timbers able to move through Dallas's midfield, come up with combinations, just not able to execute in the final third uh, against Columbus. I don't think that Columbus controlled the midfield. I think that you look at the Timbers' talent, and they lost a couple of high-end players on their roster as far as the talent distribution is concerned, Fernando Adi, uh, Darlington Nagby, to be specific. And what they've generally done is replace them with depth. It's a deeper team than ever, but I think it lacks the talent at the high end of the roster that it used to have. And I think that's really coming into play these last two months or so when you need people to step forward. Okay, who from this team can step forward? And it kind of goes back to the goals discussion that you are talking about. Who on this roster is capable of chipping in a goal? They don't really have a second striker right now that has proven to be dangerous like, Darren Maddox was last year for all the frustrations fans had with him or Darlington Nagby could uh, could be dangerous if you give him space and I think it's kind of the same thing in midfield they don't have the person that's going to control the midfield even if I don't necessarily think that teams are controlling the midfield against them
0: so Isaac asks uh, kind of going looking a little bit more ahead what positions do you anticipate being prioritized by the Timbers in the offseason particularly now that more players and positions seem in question than they did a few months ago
1: yeah right We've already kind of talked about this a little bit. Um, Just more questions than ever on this team, than ever before this year. I mean, what do you think? I think, got to find another goal scorer somewhere. I think we talked about how getting Lucas Milano back, some other acquisitions meant that they had some wingers now, and they're still not playing wingers. So I think they kind of need to go to where they have some reliable threats there. You have to make some decisions as, do you think Christian Paredes is going to improve next year? If not need another central midfielder. Liam Ridgewell looks unlikely to come back. Maybe he does. Um, maybe you need another central defender just for depth purposes. I don't know. I think that except for at fullback, I think you're kind of in a situation, and goalkeeper, I think you're in a situation where you kind of just go out there and get the best players available because you need them.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be, and we'll get to this a little bit more, I think, but and in the coming weeks we'll talk even more about this, but I think there's going to be a lot of moves the Timbers have to make. I, this is, I think there's going to be some have to be some big signs off season, and I think that starts with figuring out what they're doing with their third DP spot. And I yeah. think that very likely could be bringing in a brand new forward. Uh, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but I I think that that's absolutely the number one priority is going to be looking at the forward position, and then from there it's going to be all right. Do we need to get better at defensive or – do we need to get another veteran, a center back who's maybe deaf, but can step in um, because the, our second and third center backs are a little bit younger. Um, and, and again, just looking at even attacking midfield, I mean, even where Valery's at is not, there was, there's been a drop-off since last year and I think like I said Blanco can sort of fill into that role but ultimately they need to start thinking seriously about what that's going to look like long-term so there's
1: absolutely is a
0: lot of questions for this team are
1: you going to bet on Diego Valeri not taking another drop-off next year are you going to continue to bet on Diego Chara playing at this level Sebastian Blanco is now entering a point in his career in terms yeah. of his age cycle as many miles as he has on him are you going to continue to bet that he will take a step forward next year and then You mentioned it earlier in the show. Samuel Armenteros has one goal in the last couple of months. Does this team have a proven goal scorer at forward? The answer, maybe, at the end of the season is no. And like you said... That's going to necessitate some very tough decisions. And also, as far as roster room is concerned, we're going to talk to Cameron Knowles a little bit about T2. You've got players like Marvin Luria. You've got players like Renzo Zambrano, Foster Langsdorf, uh, Kendall McIntosh, Modu Jadama, uh, Marco Farfan, who is kind of straddling the two worlds. You've got a lot of players who need to take the next step in their career next year. So how do you resolve that depth? How do you open up space? Uh, it might be the type of thing where you're really just Acquiring one or two players, a designated player, maybe another TAM player, and saying, Look, we need a striker, we need a ball playing central defender, and the rest, it's going to have to come from internal improvement.
0: Well, before I let you introduce uh, Cameron Knowles, I want to get to one more very important <laughs> question from Matt. Um, super important uh, well, this question. Oh, one's, this one's um, close to your heart. <laughs> it is. Which sports fan is more obnoxious, Matt asks? The soccer fan that likes to hate on baseball or the baseball fan? that likes to hate on
1: soccer. Oh my gosh, build a bonfire. (laughs) (laughs) Put both both of these on top and then put put obnoxious sports columnists in the middle and then we'll burn the (laughs) the whole entire lot. Uh, I kind of think that, I'll speak from first-person experience here, I get most annoyed with myself when I irrationally hate on baseball. Because it's basically like me crapping on the personal experience of so many people in this country. Like, baseball is still really popular. It's really popular for good reasons. It's really popular for historical reasons. And it's one thing to say, okay, historically that's going to change. The next generation of people aren't going to have a lot of baseball fans. It's another thing for people like me to crap on baseball fans now. So I get really disappointed in myself when I get too negative about baseball. So I think the soccer fan that is all upfitting about soccer's rise in this country is a little bit more annoying than the baseball fan that is holding on to something.
0: So I, I get really annoyed at both because I am the person that's actually fans of both of these, soccer yeah. and baseball. So I get annoyed anytime time that um, and, and anyone's sort of on either side, but I'm going to go on the opposite side of you. The reason why I think uh, the baseball fan that kind of uh, speaks poorly about soccer is more anno- obnoxious and annoying is because I think soccer fans that don't like baseball say oh baseball is boring or i don't like this aspect of the game i i disagree with that but it's sort of like looking at the game and saying i don't like this because of these actual reasons whereas going the opposite way baseball fans that uh kind of look down like hate on soccer are sort of just like oh soccer's not a sport oh that's european oh that's yeah it's so disproportionate so I, I just I just think that the reasoning that you generally see used by the obnoxious baseball fan who hates on soccer is just has just absolutely no merits and just drives me crazy. And while I disagree, and I, I don't think the soccer fans has merits either, it's not quite as obnoxious.
1: Yeah, you've kind of converted me actually, <laughs> because like the whole angle of like it's not even a sport is just weird. Um, I'm, although I've heard soccer fans say that, too, about baseball. But it's more yeah. like, oh, you don't need to be an athlete to play baseball. Yeah. I just uh,
0: think it's a lack of respect for soccer as a sport, which is it just drives me crazy. I've heard that
1: kind of going that way. Well, you've definitely convinced me, and it's uh, something I'll think about during this small break we're going to have bringing in somebody who we maybe should have had on the show a little bit earlier this year but as we alluded to at the beginning of this podcast covering two first division teams sometimes doesn't leave a lot of time for a second division team but portland's second division team has clinched a spot in the usl playoffs they're going to be playing their final home game of the season at merlot field on wednesday and so to talk about that as well as the arc that t2 has taken from a very disastrous 2017 to a very successful 2018 we welcome in head coach cameron knowles
0: Hams, thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, a big season for T two this year. You guys are gearing up for playoffs. Um, I, I guess when you took this job, given you know where the team was last year, last year, did you expect that you'd be at this point at this point in the season?
2: Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say expect. Now, did we set out with you know the the goal of it for sure? I mean, that was that was a goal. It was a clear goal from the organization was to make the make the playoffs. Um, I'd seen some of T2 in the past. Um, I don't think that the results accurately reflected the quality that was in the team. You know, there was just a lot of inexperience. There was a lot of young players. And I think, you know, seeing that the squad had had added some older players this year, I thought that there was every chance that they could, you know, we could get that balance right and and win more games for sure.
1: I was just talking to Renzo Zambrano about exactly that. He came in for seven games at the end of last year, saw that just the experience wasn't enough to inch the team over the line. Who would you say are some of the most important players that have come on board that have added that element to get the talent and the results in line?
2: Yeah, I mean, we spoke about it a little bit the other day. You know, guys, you know, Nathan Smith came in, Jimmy Mulligan came in, um, Josh Phillips came in, these guys that came in in the offseason and and have had different experiences. You know, Nathan's played some MLS games, and he's also seen the USL side of it. Um, You know, Jimmy's won a lot of games and a little bit older, a little bit more experienced. And Josh has come from a different USL program where they were used to winning. You know, they were used to being in the playoffs. And so to have that mentality and and to show our guys what that means, not just during the game for 90 minutes, but what that means every day in training, what that process is in order to put yourself in a position to have a chance to win come, come the weekend.
0: You guys um, obviously I I think fans you want to see all the prospects from T2 becoming stars on the first team and and you kind of want that as a fan immediately but from the progress that you've seen in in the players that are being developed this year how do you feel like the direction um, that the team is headed and in terms of developing players for the first team?
2: Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it's great. You know, part of that development is learning how to win games. And, and so they've had that side of it. Um, You know, we've got some young players that are playing significant amount of minutes and, and, and they've done well. So there's a lot of pieces of that development um, process that I think have, have gone in the right direction this year. You know, the collaboration with, with the first team and, and some players coming down and getting important minutes, whether that's a young player that we're looking, you know, a long way down the line for, or whether that's, you know, someone that's it's a more short-term prospect for the first team that just needs to either get fit or, you know, get themselves back on track, whether it's, you know, one game here, two games there. Um, and I think, you know, the T2 has done uh, the job that it needs to do, which is to help serve the first team.
1: Development versus what's best in that given week. I mean, that's been a tension for you all year. I remember at the beginning of the year, Augustine Williams starting so strong, but then you have players like Foster and Jeremy Obobese who need their time and Even now, you mentioned Josh Phillips, but you have people like Mojadamo and Arturo Dispe who need their time. In terms of man management, how has that presented a challenge to you to continue to get the buy-in from people like Augie and Josh while still giving the playing time, the minutes to the people that need the development?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks most to the character of those guys, you know, because that is, I think, one of the hardest positions to be in is... You know, it could look for all money like they're going to start. And then just the way the chips fall, someone else comes down and plays. So um, the attitude of those players to work incredibly hard day in and day out and whether they get, you know, five minutes, 50 minutes, 90 minutes um, to give us everything they've got in those moments has been has been incredible. I mean, um, it, it is challenging. It's challenging. There's a lot of logistics that are challenging with that—the man management side of it, the, the preparation of the team, um, you know—and and the first team have done an incredible job of trying to communicate those things as early as possible, so we know we kind of know what's coming down the road. But you know, every now and then there's a last-minute injury or a suspension or something that changes it. Um, and, and the guys, you know, credit to them and, and their attitude, and uh, and to just get on with it and know that when they're when that moment comes where we call their name, that they're ready, you know, because they've trained every day, you know, and in, in that right frame of mind.
0: What has it been like for you, the transition from, you know, being on the first team staff um, for a long period of time and now moving into this role um, as both a head coach but in a head coach in an environment where the team that you're working for is still, you know, working um, for the first team's needs?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think it's great because there's so much of – this side that I never saw from the first team side, you know, when when we're giving, uh, you know, trying to trying to work with T2 and I didn't understand the challenges that they had so now to sit in, in this seat and to see those challenges and to, you know, then have seen the first team side and, and, and try to make that better and smoother and, you know, use my experience from being with the first team um, to help T, T2 and to help the T2 players and also to help those players that are being loaned to us you know, and, and and use that experience in that way. But for me personally, it's been an incredible growth year. I mean, there's so much that um, I hadn't thought about, that uh, challenges that I hadn't had in the past. You know, we had a staff before that had worked together for a very long time, and everyone kind of knew their role. And so, to come into a, a different and unsettling environment has been has been really, really rewarding.
1: Now, in terms of your staff, it's watching you guys train as much as I can during the week. The dynamic between you. And Andrew Greger, who has stayed on, who's brought in valuable experience. And then Aiden Brown, who has a different kind of valuable experience. On paper, it looks like a good combination. But personality-wise, you three have a very interesting balance. For people that aren't familiar with you guys, how would you describe the personality mesh between the three of you?
2: Uh, I don't know know if I can put it accurately into words. But we're all very different. Um, And I think that gives great balance to to our staff, you know, to, to our little team. Um, you know, we, we go about our days differently. We, you know, really different personalities. We've all had different experiences, and I think that all combines into um, checking a lot of boxes that we can offer these players. You know, we can, we can show them different perspectives and um, some things that may stress, you know, one guy out may not stress the other, and, and to have that balance and to be able to be really honest with each other in those moments... Um, is great for us, you know, and it's been great for me. Like you say, Greg is, Greg's experience in, in USL as a coach and knowing the other players um, that we're going to go against, the other teams, the other stadiums and whatnot. I, I didn't know that coming in, you know. I mean, I try and get up to speed as quick as I can, but that's not been my focus, and he's been – you know, in that, in that world. So that's been really incredible. And then his knowledge of, of what's not worked in the past and what we can do, you know, to get better has been great.
1: I think Coach Greger heard his name. He just tried to pick his, uh, poke his head through the door in a minute. But, I mean, people who watched <laughs> T2 last year, just watching the sideline demeanors of Coach Greger and Coach Knowles. Like, Coach Greger gets into it. A minute, <laughs> but I think uh, speaking a little bit euphemistically here. Whereas Coach Knowles is kind of, I think you've kind of settled into your sideline demeanor on the year.
2: Well to be fair, I've got to give him a lot of credit there because he warned me. Um, he warned me that, that there's not a lot of tolerance for um, theatrics on the sideline, and I might find myself getting dismissed from a few games. so um, yeah, I mean, we're different people, you know we're going we're gonna to go about things differently. My personality is, is different to his, and you know, there's, there's no right or wrong, and it's, um, I, I'm going to try and be as, as true to myself as possible.
0: So obviously, no matter what happens this so year you guys are in playoffs for the first time and the turnaround this year, I mean you have to view this as a success, but what improvements do you still think the program needs to make and what um, how you want to see t2 um, evolve moving forward
2: well i mean we've got to we 've got to continue to to get players you know onto the first team that's that 's the primary goal is we have to have to develop those players so getting into the Getting into the playoffs and having an opportunity in the postseason is is great for us, you know, and that's that's one metric by which we've been successful. But we have to, you know, continue giving valuable time to guys that are, you know, have a future with the first team. Um, and so that's, you know, we'll see how that plays out over the off season and and through next year. But but hopefully we can continue to push guys up to the first team.
1: Okay, let me ask a question that I don't think Coach Knowles is going to actually answer. <laughs> Merlot Field or Providence Park, which of the two venues do you prefer playing at?
2: That's a difficult one. Um, I, I really think Merlot is such a great facility to play a game. You know, if I was a player, and I think that's a real... We, we have it hard because we've got two great facilities, mm-hmm. and that makes it difficult for us, because teams coming in either get to play in Providence Park, which is an unbelievable facility, or they get to play at Merlot, which is probably one of the best grass fields that you play on in this country yeah um, so when you have players that have come from these you know baseball stadiums that have got sod laid down or you know some sort of high school field or you know the, a field that's you know you're playing in Colorado Springs at the beginning of the year, and the grass isn 't growing yet you so, um, to come out at Merlot and you know, the the pitch is immaculate. I mean, there's not a blade of grass out of place and especially I think, you know, tomorrow night's going to be great one where it's a little bit cooler and uh, the ball's going to move great. They're, that's Those are the kind of fields you want to play on as a player. Um, and then that said, you know, we have such a special building in, in Providence Park and for our guys to be able to experience that, you know, albeit at a lower level, but to, to get that, that idea of playing on that field and and to visualize themselves in those moments because, you know, they go and they watch the first team and they get to see what that game looks like in front of 21,000 people. And then, you know, they get to be on that field and maybe imagine themselves in that scenario. Maybe that helps propel them, you know, to a bit of performance or, you know, helps helps guide their goal setting for the future. So I think I think both. I mean, we can't we can't really go wrong. They're two amazing facilities.
1: Let me follow up with this, Coach. Sorry, Jamie. Um, Reno is coming into town playing Wednesday. It's the second time this year they've been at Merlot. The first time I mean, it kind of plays into what you were talking about. They came back late, scored two goals, flipped that result. Do you think having these venues that other teams have wanted to play at have gotten excited about? was a struggle for you guys early in the year. Because early in the year, you know, those last 20 minutes, 15 minutes of games, it seemed like the experience needed to build to close games out.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we said it to the guys early on. You know, make no mistake, everyone's going to come here and we're going to get their best performance. Because you know what it's like to walk out into any of these facilities. And you're going to get excited. You know, you're going to get ramped up. You're going to think, man, this is unbelievable. Um, So we knew we were going to get really, really good performances from, from the opposition. Every time we, we saw them, there wasn't going to be this, oh, they're coming here, they don't really want to play on this field, we're going to get the better of them in the first 10 or 15 minutes, or whatever it is. Um, and we knew that we had to be up for those challenges, and I think that's been part of the growth of this team throughout the year, and we keep saying it to to the group, is when we look back at those games, and you know, just this morning we showed guys some of those clips from the game we played at Molo and the game we also played in Reno, and I mean, we look very different. You know, we look very, very different than what we did earlier on. And I think the way that we've learned from those experiences and those performances and, and got better will hopefully um, propel us to a, to a better result this time around.
0: So, I mean, obviously, like, tomorrow, you know, is your last uh, game at home in the regular season. Then you're gearing up for playoffs. I, I think you, there's obviously a lot of fans that follow both T2 and MLS, but there there's still fans out there that are, you know, only following the MLS side. Um, I, I was hoping you could... Give, give us some reasons and give fans out their reasons. why. What is the big reason why fans should tune into the USL playoffs and, and watch this team in, in the coming weeks?
2: Well, I think, you know, we've got good players. You know, we're, we've got good players. We're, we've been in almost every game that we've played, and we play, you know, we go out and we go out on the front foot and we try and win games. We've scored a lot of goals this year. The games have been, I think, really exciting. I think the games we played at Merlo recently have been really exciting. There've been some, you know, some good games and some close games. And I think, you know, as we get into this part of the season, every game is against a really good team. Um, you know, this this game tomorrow is against a really good team at home, and then we go on the road to a very good team, and, and hopefully we can get results that give us the opportunity to play a home game in the playoffs. But I think, you know, whether it's home or away, to to get support. Um, for me it would be a no-brainer because we've got some exciting young players that are really worth watching and, and I think it'd be a really cool thing for someone to be able to say you know what I went out and I, I saw him he, play, he played at University of Portland he ripped it up scored the game winner and here he is three years later starting for the first team you know I think that would be cool for me as a supporter I would want to do that I would want to support the club in that way
0: well, thanks again to Cameron Knowles for coming on and joining us today. I think you gave a pretty good answer there for uh, why people should come out and support T2 in these next few weeks.
1: I'm just so proud of myself that I didn't slip in any inside jokes or started laughing about something that people can detect on the podcast. I am I maybe am not a, entirely an infant here on this show most of the time, <laughs> most of the time.
0: It's interesting talking to Cam because we're so used to all these coaches that, that answer things with like 10-minute answers. actually, We actually <laughs> had to come up with questions. Didn't have, to, didn't have to just say one thing and just let Cam talk for 30 minutes.
1: Uh, it would have been good to listen to him talk for 30 minutes. Uh, yeah. But over the last couple <laughs> of weeks, I've had, to, I've had to. I've gotten the opportunity to get closer to what, with what T2 is doing. And I thought that he did a really good job of kind of summarizing the arc that the team has had yeah. to go through this year and a, a lot of other stuff that we could have talked about. The integration that Giovanni Savarese has spearheaded Uh, between the first team and the second team is at a level that this organization has never experienced before and i think a lot of people see that in just the shared resources how many players have played six eight teams at eight games at t2 when they're really first team players and uh, i think it gives people more of a reason to actually follow t2 and maybe next year they'll get on board a little bit
0: yeah i I think obviously for fans the question is going to continue to be um whether when these players that are doing well at T2 are going to get that opportunity to advance to the first team and, Mm -hmm. you know, get more than a few minutes, hopefully become impact players at the first team level. I think that is still a question this organization needs to answer over time um, and one that doesn't have a perfect answer yet. But I I think you look at T2 and I wrote about T2 a few weeks ago and um, just the turnaround this year. I think this is a good sign um, and some of the talent also on the roster and how, yeah. what they're doing at the USL level, a sign that the program's moving in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I think the number one goal for this organization was to show the world that it was serious about T2. And I don't think anybody has asked a question about that commitment in some time. So in that sense, a successful year for Gavin Wilkinson, Cameron Knowles, Andrew Greger, Aiden Brown. Let's go into uh, one of our more notorious segments on the show. <laughs> Chris Reifer, Memorial Hot Take Interlude. Jamie, do you want to go first?
0: Sure. It kind of builds off the conversation we were having at the end of the um, Timbers discussion, but I'll just continue on. might not be as hot takey. I'm just reading this. This (laughs) This is a
1: great take. I mean, I don't know if I I can't say if I agree with this or not because I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but this is, you are (laughs) leaning in. I love this.
0: Well, I think that looking into the offseason, as we were sort of just talking about uh, what the Timbers are going to do. I think the Timbers are going to have to make wholesale changes to their forwards in the offseason. And I think that means that they're not going to bring back Armenteros. That's not going to be worthwhile for their DB contract, given the slump he's been in it. and the ultimate, maybe finishing round eight, 10 goals or whatever he ends up. They're not going to bring back Lucas Milano because he's come in, and while he's, you know, given a little bit of spark off the bench he hasn't come close to really getting that starting lineup yet and he, he hasn't scored and he, he doesn't really look like he's going to add all that much has really stepped up in that um role yet to the point where i think he's worthwhile bringing back so i think they're going to kind of get rid of both of those and i think with connect um We've seen his one start, and he's nowhere near where he needs to be. I think given the loan situation they have, he he probably will be around for the beginning of next year, but he might not even make it through the whole year if we don't see improvement, I think, when that loan ends. They're not going to extend it unless there's massive improvement coming into preseason next year. So I I think they're just going to have to completely start over with their forward situation, and they're going to have to go out and get a DP forward uh, that can put goal numbers up like Fernando Audi did. And they're going to have to build around that maybe get another TAM player because Milano won't be coming back. Someone that can is going to be more effective coming into that role maybe as a winger or another forward option. And they're going to have to continue looking to potentially the younger side into the future because I'm not sure Konek needs the answer either.
1: I completely agree with your assessments of those players. I think even if they bring back Armenteros, they need to bring in some competition for him because Armenteros was at his best when Adi was here. And I don't know what has happened. There's been some things that people have now learned about that's happened that's taken Sam away from the team for a couple days at a time. But, I mean, ultimately, like your DP players, which Sam would be next year, they got to be scoring goals. I mean, that's the whole reason why Adi was traded, right? So you got to go out there. You got to get somebody. I think um, maybe bringing in a proven MLS goal scorer that's on a TAM level deal to be kind of the security blanket just in case the player that you bring in as a DP doesn't work out. Either way... Yeah, you make a lot of sense, particularly we haven't seen yet that Konechny is going to be an MLS contributor. Yep. Maybe that will evolve. And what we've seen from Milano is that he's he'd be a good sub to have, but you're not building your attack around a sub-level player. So either those guys have to dramatically improve or... Or yeah. a I mean, obviously Milano happened.
0: wouldn't be on a DP contract next yeah. year, but it would have to be way, way lower for and them to find it worthwhile to keep him as a sub. I think it makes a lot more sense to go out and just start over there.
1: And I think that if you're betting on players like Jeremy Abobasi and Foster Langsdorf to become double-digit scorers next year, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying it's not the wisest bet in the world. Their progression is going to take them a little while together. I think, yeah. I, I wish I could give you points for that take. I thought that, I thought that was a great take. Um, my take is, you know, I kind of hinted at it in the first segment of the show. I think the Timbers should go back to their 5-3-2 this year. But I think the broader implication of that is between the formation change they went to the Diamond Midfield this week and maybe having to go to a 5-3-2 or another formation this week after, after losing some players at the back, the Timbers are out of time to evolve. Throughout this year, Giovanni Savarese has been telling us he's trying to add things to the attack, kind of grow from that Christmas tree that he instilled the third week of a season. And now all of a sudden, after a suspension to Blanco and some injuries, we're here at game 32 of the season and you're just like, are they really going to evolve that much between game 32 and game 35? And again, that's not something you can really bet on. So I think my hot take is this Timbers attack, this is what it is this year, that all of the circumstances of the season have precluded the team, from being able to get to where it wants attacking wise, and the timbers we see now are the timbers we're gonna get.
0: Yeah, which is why you want to be at the <laughs> five in the back to right. make sure you're shutting down the defense. Yeah, I I, I feel that way too. I, I just I, I'm not sure we're gonna see much more involvement in the team, and I'm not sure we're gonna see this team come into the great end of the season rhythm you want. It, it's getting sort of late, and maybe that changes. But this also feels a little bit. Like the end of 2016, where there was some hope that they would sort of finally get things together, um, and it just didn't happen. Right. We've we're
1: all been thinking about that a lot lately. I was thinking back to Caleb Porter's press conferences during that year, and about halfway through the year, people were like, So you haven't won a game on the road yet? And at first, he was kind of like, You know, we really haven't been trying. We've got to balance these things. And like, in case you haven't noticed, we haven't been putting our best teams out there on the road. Another month goes by. Okay, you still have a one on the road. Last game of the season comes. All right, you've had t- traditionally had some success in Vancouver. And then the <laughs> sledgehammer just falls. Yeah, And there is that feeling right now. And I think the Timbers having better depth than they did at the time means that it has better options to mix and, and match. And less injuries. Yes. But at the same time, there is this feeling right now that there, is a, uh, there isn't much upside, it feels like, right now. And obviously that can change. But I think... Giovanni Savarese has to really emphasize to his players like now is the time to change it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this gets off on another tangent. When I watch the game on Saturday, when I watch it back a couple times, I actually don't have much of a problem with the game plan. I think the players could have executed it a little bit better. I think we talked about that a little bit. I, I'm, get, I'm still getting used to the fact that Giovanni Savarese seems to be an inherently conservative coach. Seems like he, he's willing to let the first 45, 60 minutes of a game play out let the Blancos and Valerias and Armateros of the world try to you know, get the team in front without really risking anything. And then the risks come. I'm not exactly sure if that balance is right, but I also know that I'm just kind of mentally getting used to that. Whereas with Caleb Porter, it was like, this is our style. This is our approach. This is how we play soccer. Let's go. And I think even after all this time, I'm, I'm not quite, I don't quite have a grasp on the difference of those two worlds.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's why a lot of people still wonder what the Timbers' identity is, and and they find it difficult to sort of classify this team,
1: even at this point. Scarier thought for them, what if this is the Timbers' identity? (laughs) Like, what if like this this inherently kind of, like, conservative, disciplined team that is going to rely on opportunism, hitting you on the counter, what if that's the identity?
0: I think that's fine, and that's a team that can win championships if it works. Because if the defense is... It works, you know, yeah. if you don't lose, uh, you can keep going. But that's the problem is that that's not what we've seen, particularly on the road. That conservative, the, even if you have maybe that game plan, it hasn't worked out recently.
1: Let's shift gears for a little bit and let's talk about the other first division team under the Portland umbrella, although there isn't a lot to talk about here. <laughs> but with the Thorns, there was some news this week because all NWSL teams had to extend contract offers or pick up options on their players. Basically, the Thorns either offered everybody a contract or pick up options on everybody, except for Meg Morris, who we learned through the league's release is likely to retire. And I don't think that really strikes anybody as a huge surprise, although it is no, still pretty sad. I
0: mean, yeah, it's disappointing. Injuries have just completely railed, derailed her career, in, and she was clearly a promising yeah. young player that that looked like she could have a bright future in the NWSL before. Um, Her hip hip injury, it was. Uh, So, yeah, it's really unfortunate to see, Um, but at the same time, not surprising. Um, Yeah, I I think in terms of picking up options, I I, I don't want to assume certain players are leaving or not, but I I definitely want to make sure people understand that just because options have been picked up does not mean that this is what the roster is going to look like next year. I I saw people saying, oh, Anna Cernogorsovich is coming back. Maybe she is. But... Don't make the assumption that just because we've seen options picked up that there aren't going to be trades or or other things that happen. Uh, It makes sense to pick up the options, but it doesn't necessarily mean these players will be on the roster.
1: I'm so glad you brought this up because it was obviously the one thing I wanted to mention in this segment I mentioned (laughs) to you before the show. NWSL teams have very little disincentive to not offering a contract to a player or not picking up their options because most of the time these contracts almost all the time these contracts aren't guaranteed so these players they could still be released in the preseason and the clubs have no obligation and if they don't pick up the option and they don't or they don't extend an offer they lose the rights to that player so it's really about maintaining the asset as much as it is maintaining the control of the team now we have heard from league managing director Amanda Duffy that we are highly likely to have expansion of the rosters next year 2320 four players but just go ahead and take out a pencil and paper sketch out all of the names that you know are associated with the thorns and then add in some players that didn't play this year like sandra Yu. gabby Siler never came out here because of injuries but she was a high draft pick last year uh, there's a player simone charlie who tra- trained with the team the whole year uh, bella geist we know was the third goalkeeper but she didn't occupy a roster spot she was only a national team replacement at times or was, it, was she a national team replacement for Eighty French a couple of times?
0: I think she was an injury replacement. Injury
1: replacement, yeah, during the 80s injuries. Either way, we just named four players who were going to compete for roster spots, and the team already had 23 after the breakers were there. So, yeah, there Essentially, are some play- they
0: raised the rosters this year. It just been, wasn't the same under the cap, so right. that's not really changing.
1: So, Meg Morris frees up one spot. You still got a lot of competition. You have more players that are going to come in either through the draft or going to be signed from outside. So yeah, I think that we're still going to see significant changes on the Thorns roster.
0: Yeah. And they're going to have to, with given how many players they have, they're going to the world cup They're They're they going to have to make changes this off season that we have yet to see. So
1: they're just going to have to um, make changes to keep up with the league. I mean, everybody's yeah, exactly. concentrating on the courage being at a certain level and they should, but something that we talked about on this show, three or four of the playoff teams this year, were better than any team in the NWSL last year. And maybe that progression doesn't happen in 2019 because of the world cup. But if you're building a team, you have to pretty much try to build the best team that the NWSL has ever seen in order to even compete for the title (laughs) the next year.
0: Well, the only other thing I think to mention is just that if fans do want to continue watching some of the uh, Thorns uh, play this week, uh, US Women's National Team will begin its qualifiers, as as will Canada um, this week. the Concacaf World Cup qualifiers beginning I, for the U.S. at least Thursday uh, against Mexico. Um, Lindsey Horan is there. Emily son is there. Tobin Heath is there. So
1: yeah, it'll be interesting to see. We know that Lindsey Herran is going to be a starter. Is Tobin Heath a, star- a starter now? She should be. I think so. Yeah, she should be. But we haven't seen who Jill Ellis picks when she has her full complement of wide players. In other words, is it going to be her or Mallory Pugh that gets the starting winger spot opposite Megan Rapinoe? And then Emily Sonnet, too, now that Kelly O'Hara is back in the team. Yeah, that's Casey more of a question. Yeah, is me. she going to be the starting right back? Do you think that they should all three of these players should be starters in the national team?
0: I think Haran and Heath absolutely should be stars on the national team. I'd Imagine be a team
1: where Tobin <laughs> Heath shouldn't be a starter. Yeah,
0: I would be shocked if those two are in the lineup. I think I think it's more of a competition for and I, I think yeah. it will be a competition now and going all the way into the World Cup next year. I expect her to be on that roster, but whether or not she's a starter by that point, I, I think it, it's gonna that's going to continue to evolve that competition.
1: Um, a couple of other things. Um, in addition to the W League starting in a couple of weeks where the Thorns will have a presence, if only for their Australian loanies that go down there. Um I think it's fair to say a couple of other thorns are going to end up down there. Expect announcements on that soon. Australia is playing in Europe this week, and also European World Cup qualifying continues where Anna Cunogorcevic is involved with Switzerland the first of potentially two rounds of playoffs for her so it's going to be an active offseason for her and hopefully she gets some rest before coming back (laughs) to Portland this winter if she comes back Jamie there is a huge game on Saturday for Portland I think you can argue this is the most important game of their season because if they lose this game RSL passes them on the table even if they beat RSL in two weeks they're basically only getting the points back that they gave RSL this weekend they got to get a result this weekend so you're definitely picking Portland to get at least a draw, right?
0: I'm going to predict that the Timbers lose two to nothing at the team that <laughs> is the best home. We are in the Western at the Conference. training facility right now, yeah. and you are <laughs> biting. <laughs> no, they uh, RSL is the best. I mean, their record at home. Speaks for itself, and the Timbers have been terrible on the road. And there's no reason, I think, for me to assume it's going to be any different. So they have to prove that that's wrong. Um, but there's nothing that the Timbers have shown to this point to make me think they're suddenly going to have a much better performance on the road.
1: Yeah, you know, side bets are difficult to come up with when you're going, when you're talking about a team going to play at altitude against a team that has only lost one of, I think, 14 games at home this year so far. I can't remember exactly how many, but they've won 10, they've lost one. And I can't remember how many draws. It's hard to see any team going there and having a lot of success, but I do think just based on the game plan that I th- think or maybe even hope Giovanni Savarese institutes this week that the game will stay within a goal. And I think it's possible that the Timbers win this one. If they stay really conservative like they did at Atlanta. I mean, that game ended up being a lot of chances created, but the Timbers created as many chances as Atlanta United there. I, I guess my gut tells me that Actually, my gut's really confused. I'm just going to throw this side <laughs> bet out there. On one hand, I think, like I said in the hot take, going to the five three two makes sense. But I also think it stunts your growth going into the playoffs because you don't want to be playing five three two for the rest of the year. Even if, like you said, that that's one of their most successful formations this year. I just it's kind of a concession to the way the season's gone. So, my side bet is that it just stays within one goal, and that's feels like an even weaker side bet than last year's last week's side bet. <laughs>
0: well, given the recent form on the road, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Maybe, yeah, this is a two hundred point. Yeah, <laughs> side I don't bet. know. All right. Well, I think all we have left is the fantasy update. Uh, In third place this week, we have my favorite team. (laughs) Jamie B. Goldberg FC is still in third place with 1,010 points. Bloodbath and Beyond's in second place with uh, 1,023. And Armand Terrors, good good name for the month of October, uh, is in first place with with, uh, 1,027 points. Um, and that's all for us. Uh, we're soccer made in Portland. You can find us every week on Stumptown footy, Oregon live and Timbers.com or you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and until next week, take care.